Let's settle on. We're going to do the clinical integration of the cellular components and on the skin today. So at this point, I want you to think back all the organelles that were present within the cell, the functions of the various organelles, think of cell cycle, and all the other things involved with cell. So let us watch this video to recap the various functions we have seen. Yeah, thank you. So we have seen the various functions of the organelles within the cell and also the importance of cytoskeleton, the microtubules that are basis for transferring all these molecules or vesicles across. Okay, so we are going to start the lecture with, um, sorry, with the clicker question. Sorry, sorry, just go back here. I'm not sure what's going on here, I'm supposed to finish at one. So the function of P53 protein controlled by TP53 is what? To arrest cell division and to allow repair. Okay, Rolf. Mouse is not working. Okay. Great, so immediate apoptosis. So initially, it causes cell division arrest. We will talk more about it throughout the lecture when we go to the development of cancer. So here are the objectives. Uh, if you learn all the objectives, you should be able to answer any of the questions in exam because questions are based on objectives. They are linked to objectives. So let us think back the structure of a cell. Remember that when we say a cell, it could be epithelial cell, it could be a connective tissue cell, it could be an endocrine cell, endocrine meaning epitheloid cell. Okay, so different cells function in different ways. So their organelles will be increased according to their function. Either it's absorptive, it's going to be secretive, and so on. Okay, so remember that the cell membrane has a double layer of phospholipids, nucleus, containing the nucleolus, which is the center for mRNA synthesis, lysosomes, which are the stomachs or the suicide bags within the cell, peroxisomes containing enzymes inside, and cytoskeleton, very important, all those keratin and actin filaments within the cell. And not to forget the inclusion. What are organelles and what is an inclusion? Inclusion does not have the typical cell membranes around it, right? Some of the aging pigments, glycogen, lipid, those are all contents within called inclusions within the cell. So the cell, if it is in the connective tissue, then it is going to produce extracellular matrix. So we will touch a little bit on 
the extracellular matrix component in our lecture. So first is the cell membrane. What are the clinical aspects we can think of? So we have to recap what the cell membrane is made up of. The cell membrane, as you know, had the two layers of phospholipids, but it is studded with various proteins. So this is taken from a textbook, but not all of them are present in one cell. This is just an example to show that the cell might contain the various types uh, of mechanism, the proteins that do the job according to where they are located in the body. So they are called integral proteins when they are incorporated within the cell membrane and the apical aspects, or they are called peripheral proteins when they are towards the outer aspect between the cell. So two basic types. So what is the main function of cell membrane? It is for ion or nutrient transport. And in response to the external stimuli, they produce certain effects within the cell. So that is recognition of environmental signal. And the third one is cell-to-cell -cell adhesion or cell-to-extracellular matrix adhesion that we talked about like hemidesmosomes and so on. Okay? To enhance these functions, they have these um, uh, six different types shown here. They can act as pumps. They can act as channels to pass ions forward. They can act as receptors like endocrine cells. They will respond to like thyroid stimulating hormone. They will bind to it and they will produce thyroxin in response. Now when we go to muscle chapter, we will learn something about dystrophin protein that helps to anchor the actin filaments within the muscle cell to the extracellular matrix, which is very important in keeping the muscle cells intact. Some act as enzymes and other as structural proteins that we talked about in the desmosomes and structures of zonular adherence and so on. So let us do some clinical concepts on these proteins, how they act. The first one is on proteins that act as abnormal carrier proteins. So the example shown is from the kidney. Now we, when you go to the CPR module, we will study that the um, kidney has convoluted tubules that reabsorb a lot of substances that are passing through those lumen. And one of the substances is cysteine. So normally, cysteine is reabsorbed through a carrier protein. So if those proteins are abnormal, then the cysteine gets collected in the urine, and they can form cysteine stones in the kidney. Okay? So this is just one of the examples of abnormal carrier protein. The second category, we will see two toxins. One is tetrodotoxin, the other is cholera toxin. Tetrodotoxin is produced by puffer fish. You would have seen that in a lot of movies, right? People put zombie powder, or they call it TTX, in somebody's drink, and then the next thing, the patient, the person dies, right? Because they will inactivate the sodium channels. Okay, sodium-gated channels. You will learn that more in physiology about how the nerves, uh, the signals are conducted due to these channels. So these will actually inactivate the sodium channels, especially in the neurons, and they will cause paralysis of mainly voluntary muscles initially, and then ultimately the diaphragm causing respiratory paralysis. So it is considered a neurotoxin for which we have no antidote. Cholera toxin is uh, exotoxin, meaning the Vibrio cholerae, which is a gram-negative bacteria, which produces this substance. Now, it is also called an enterotoxin because it acts on the GI, the enterocytes, meaning the cells lining the small intestine. So when these are released, when the Vibrio cholerae, which is looking like these, in scanning EM, and in a diagram, so when they are ingested with contaminated water, it gets into the GI and it alters the GS proteins within the intestinal cells. So there is more amount of sodium being pumped out of the cell into the lumen. So as the sodium goes out, water follows the sodium and therefore this patient will develop profound diarrhea. So the amount of water that is sent out can cause severe dehydration, and the patient, if not treated, can die in a few hours. So that is cholera toxin effect. 
Not only the fluid is sent out, the mucous membrane, the cells are being discharged into the lumen and that creates a whitish appearance to the diarrhea. So they call this a rice water stools. Okay? So they pass a large amount of whitish watery stools that causes dehydration and death of patient. So it's very critical to know that in the treatment of cholera. Some of the venoms, like snake venom, can affect the receptors at neuromuscular junction for acetylcholine. So when they bind with those receptors, of course, all those muscles that need the acetylcholine will get paralyzed and that can lead to death. Autoimmune diseases. So autoimmune, as we all know, that there are antibodies produced by the body against their own proteins in the body. So here we have an example of Graves' disease or hyperthyroidism, meaning increased amount of thyroid hormone produced. So normally, if you, well, you have seen in the lab the follicles in the thyroid. So all those follicular cells will have receptors for TSH. So when the TSH binds with the cell surface, then they will produce the thyroid hormone in response. But if an antibody mimicking the TSH binds with the cell, then the cell is going to produce a large amount of thyroid hormone without the effect of the TSH. So that increases the amount of thyroid hormone resulting in Graves' disease. So that is the autoimmune disease affecting the cell membrane again. Now the cell membranes can also be altered in genetic conditions. So we see two conditions here. The first one is the hereditary spirocytosis. The so spirocytes are the names given to red blood cells which are rounded in appearance. What is the normal appearance of an erythrocyte? Normally, how would you call it? Donut shape, right? By concave appearance. So how is the shape, by concave shape, maintained in all the erythrocytes? By means of these proteins called spectrin, these are the pink stick-like substances, right here, proteins. And they are bound to two other proteins called band 4 protein and band 3 protein. So the binding of spectrin with these two proteins are crucial in maintaining the shape of the normal erythrocyte. But if these are defective due to genetic abnormality, then the shape of the erythrocyte becomes rounded and these are now called spirocytes. The condition is called hereditary spirocytosis. Now this will result in anemia. Why? Because any abnormal erythrocyte is detected by the spleen as it passes through the microcirculation of the spleen and these will be removed or constantly destroyed resulting in lesser amount of erythrocytes. So that is now called the anemia, results in hemolytic anemia. We will study more about that in the CPR lecture as well. The second one in relation to membrane transport is the cystic fibrosis. You would have heard about that in your biochemistry lectures. It is mainly due to a mutation in CFTR gene, which is cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator gene. So this one is of course associated with the chloride, abnormal chloride transport through the cell membrane regulators. So chloride, the next actually next slide shows you uh, how it is balanced. Okay, so I will talk about that. What happens in this condition is that the mucus secretion, the secretions are so many in our body. When you take it from head to toe, starting the sinuses within the skull, they are filled with mucous membranes producing some amount of fluid. The GI tract, exocrine glands, salivary glands, lacrimal glands, the pancreas, and throughout, wherever you talk about the mucous cells or goblet cells, they're all producing mucus secretions, which are necessary to wash away secretions throughout the body. So in this diagram, we can see a little child, most commonly affected here, is going to have thick mucus in his bronchial secretions. You can see all these areas are clogged with thick mucus, and therefore it's going to obstruct the air passage. And also, stasis of this mucus is going to be a thriving media for 
bacterial growth. So they will have recurrent infections from very young age and they don't survive more than a certain amount of the early years because of this multiple complications. So chloride channel is the one that is affected. And here we have, okay, this diagram shows you the genetic inheritance pattern. And this picture shows you uh, a normal intestinal cell with an abnormal one to compare what chloride ions are involved, how they are involved in maintaining the normal um, viscosity of the mucus. So here we can see how in balance with chloride ions, sodium and water are reabsorbed within the cell so that there is normal mucus. But if there is chloride ion irregularity, so you can see chloride ions are not going out of the cell into the lumen, thereby retaining more of sodium and water within the cell, getting the mucus more thick, increased viscosity. So these are the ones that block up all the passages within the exocrine parts right here. So here this picture shows you the various areas that affects a patient with cystic fibrosis. Although it shows a mature person right here, it affects the children more than the adults. Okay, so these are the features of cystic fibrosis. So we'll now jump into the nucleus part. So we have seen the cell membrane. We will go into the nucleus and then we'll go on to the cytoplasm, the organelles. So nucleus, as we know, is the main storage of the genome. So we have to understand we have the chromosomes and we have the nucleolus inside that organizes the mRNA inside. So we have the lipid bilayer and I hope you all remember the nuclear pore structure, how it is being formed and it totally separates the cytoplasm from the nucleus and all the command of this particular cell comes from the nucleus. So we have to remember that. So at this point, try and remember that we are talking about different types of cells with just one diagram. So if it is an absorptive cell, then the cytoplasm activity is based on that particular thing. So the command comes from the nucleus. If the cell is going to produce a large amount of proteins, again, the nucleus will have more amount of euchromatin and more amount of rough ER to produce that particular effect of a protein-producing cell. So the nucleus is the control center, okay? Now, also, um, this nucleus is controlled. The activity of the cell, mitotic division, is controlled by certain factors such as growth factors or inhibitory factors. You will see that as CDK cyclin activity on these nuclei. So, well, depending on the external environmental effects on this cell, this cell activity is monitored according to that, okay? So there are something adaptations called hypertrophy or hyperplasia of a cell, again influenced by external factors. So changes, the cell responds according to the environmental changes, whether it is going to undergo um, the adaptive responses or if it is going to be damaged to the nucleus, the cell undergoes apoptosis. And that is by the increase of the P53 proteins and so on. Okay, so these two concepts are important. Apoptosis or neoplasia. When does it occur? When there is damage to this control center, the nucleus. So before we go into that P53 proteins, let us look at uh, the karyotyping. You have a beautiful picture also in your lecture, I mean your textbook. You can look it up. So here we have the chromosomes. We know there are 23 pairs, 22 are autosomes and one sex chromosome, one pair. And we know that two Xs make up the female and X and Y is for the male, okay? So the arrangement of these chromosomes in this pattern is called karyotyping. Now we can produce a nucleotide probe similar to that of a chromatid, and we can attach them to a radioisotope or a fluorescent material, and we can study these. And that technique is called a FISH technique, fluorescent in situ hybridization. So this is how the karyotyping is done. We won't go into it in detail, but you can see the chromosomes being organized in their numbers. 
And we can also identify the chromosomes by means of fluorescent material as shown in this image. So all these blue areas are nuclei of the cells and these are different chromosomes that has been studied with fluorescent material. So the basis of the fish technique is given here where we can attach a complementary strand of nucleotide probe that are combined with a radioactive substance or fluorescent material and here is an example of two cells. Okay, these are the nuclei of the two cells and here the chromosomes 21 and 13 have been studied and this definitely shows three of the 21 chromosomes and that is called the trisomy 21, the condition that is seen in Down syndrome. So if this kind of change happens within the nucleus due to genetic abnormality, then we are going to study a condition called aneuploidy. So there are two concepts we'll study about the nucleus. One is aneuploidy and the other is transformed cell concept. So we have three examples for aneuploidy, meaning abnormal division of the chromosomes. So when we have three chromosomes, 21, and it results in Down's syndrome. So this child that develops from such a uh, aneuploid condition is going to be short with mental retardation. They have stubby appendages, cardiac abnormalities. They will have semi-increase, the low set is, high arched palate. So there are a group of things that happen. You don't have to memorize all of them. Just remember that Down syndrome is one of the conditions resulting due to aneuploidy, abnormal division of the chromosomes. Kleinfelters is another one where a male gets an additional X chromosome making him more feminine. Okay, so he's going to have narrow shoulders, gynecomasia, and you have, you know, the pelvis that is flared and, and pubic hair, different distribution of hair. So that is all feminization of a male. Turner syndrome is when a female receives only one X instead of two. Okay, so they also have other complications due to that short stature, web, neck, and, and so on. The next concept is transformed cell. So transformed cell means what? A cell that has lost its ability to listen to the controlling proteins. Okay, we call them the regulatory signals proteins. So here we have two of them. One is the growth factors like endothelial derived growth factor, platelet derived growth factor. These are promoting the cell division. At the same time, it has to be in balance with growth inhibitors right here. So all this activity is based on the CDK cyclin, okay, the phosphorylation of these. So if you just take one for example, let us look at this area alone. Here we have the retinoblastoma protein that sequesters the transcription factor. So when under the influence of growth factors, it gets phosphorylated, then it opens up the chain releasing the transcription factors to continue the cell cycle. Okay, so that is the key factor. Whereas this phosphorylation is inhibited by those inhibiting factors. So this is something I'm just recapping. You should be knowing that already. But in the clinical concept, we are going to study that some of the viruses, like human papilloma virus, which is a retrovirus, they are going to resemble the one of the transcription factor. So what they do is they bind with the retinoblastoma proteins and thereby releasing the transcription factor, allowing the cell to replicate without control, resulting in cancer formation. Okay, so that is the key concept to understand. And this is taken from pathology textbooks and you're going to see this over and over as you go towards path as well. So why is this important? So when we know this is what is happening, then we can use certain medications in cancer treatment where the cells are multiplying without any restriction. So we can take medications that can arrest the cell division 
or they can form the shortening of the mitotic spindles. Okay, some of them, like Winker alkaloids, do that. And misorganization of centrosome, so that the cell division becomes abnormal. So thereby they can cause a rest of these growth. And that is the basis behind chemotherapy in cancer. Okay? So they cause a rest of cell division. Now, we just saw the HPV, but there are other factors that can influence the nucleus in the same fashion. And they can just let them go uncontrolled, right? So the damage can come to UV radiation. We will talk a lot about skin cancers. So they can destroy the nucleus. Radiation can do that. And cigarette smokes and even in a barbecue, the burnt areas of the barbecue meat. And some of the skincare products and H. pylori. So all these are factors that can damage the nucleus and make them not respond to the inhibiting factors that suppress the cell division activity. Okay? Please note that the most important protein that they affect is the TP53 gene, and thereby the P53 that is produced in response is the one that will be affected. Okay? So as we saw in the first clicker question, the function of P53 is what? to suppress the cell division so that it has enough time to repair the DNA damage so that the cell can return to the normal condition and they can undergo normal mitotic division. If such a repair cannot be done, then what happens? The P53 will induce apoptosis causing the death of that damaged cell. So that is in normal conditions. But when this becomes abnormal, where the TP53 is affected, it is removed due to these agents causing damage to the nucleus, and P53 is not produced, and thereby the cell loses the control, the ability to stop its process and repair itself, leading to uncontrolled proliferation, leading to neoplasia, new growth of a tumor. So we will see in detail what these cells are going to look like in comparison to the normal cells. Now, due to certain influence on the nucleus of cell, the cells can proliferate. But when they proliferate, they look like the parent cell. They're not different to it. And they do not cause the death of a patient. Such growths are called benign tumors. That means they do not lead to the death of the patient. Okay? When you call malignant, then they can spread and cause death of the patient. So you call it malignant tumors. Okay? Everybody good with that? So benign tumors, if you look at an uh, example here called lipoma, which is a tumor of adipocytes. So you can see this is from a tumor, and all of them look like adipocytes, isn't it? So this is a benign tumor. It is localized. And sometimes when it stretches those areas, structures, they are painful. Whereas cancers are painless and they are capable of metastasis. Okay? So if this becomes a um, cancerous tumor, then you will call it a liposarcoma. Okay? Liposarcoma. But just lipoma is benign tumor. So we can see sheets and sheets of adipocytes within this tumor. So let us go and talk about the cancer. So we will talk about three things. What is meant by metaplasia, what is dysplasia, and what is carcinoma. So at the end of this lecture, you should be able to differentiate these three conditions. We will be seeing it in every module possible until you go to pathology, the concepts are going to come back to you again and again. Right, so now, we haven't studied this part yet, but I'm just going to give you an example. So this, as you can see, is a female reproductive tract, and here is the uterus, and the uterus has this tubular portion called the cervix. A part of the cervix projects into the vaginal canal, and you call this area as exocervix one that faces towards the uterus is called endocervix. So at this point, where the pointer is pointing to, is the junction between endocervix and the ectocervix. So there is a change in epithelium at this point. Simple columnar epithelium, 
becomes stratified squamous non-keratinized epithelium. Since there is a change here, this zone is called the transformation zone or the T zone. So which is now zoomed in at this area. This is in low magnification light micrograph showing the endocervix and here is the ectocervix. And if I zoom in at that junction, you will have an image like this. Okay, so endocervix here, simple columnar epithelium. Ectocervix, stratified squamous, non-keratinized epithelium. So what happens is due to viral infections or any other external factors, change in this epithelium can occur. Right? So this, these two are actually giving you image. When you look at it from below, when you pass a speculum, it's a small instrument that you can open up the vaginal canal and you look at the cervix, looking from underneath, this is how the cervix is going to look, okay? Shiny and, and smooth. But you can see how the normal cervix looks like. So this is a speculum. You can see how it is placed. It is opened up. With the light source, you eliminate the cervix. You take a picture. It looks like this. So if you look at maybe 50 of these, you know how a normal cervix looks. And when one looks like this, we know that there is something abnormal. Okay. So how do we know if there is some kind of lesion here? We take a small biopsy of this region and you make a slide out of it and you prepare and you have to know comparison. So at this point, if you do not know how this uh, epithelium looks, that's fine, but I'm just giving you an example. Okay, so here is stratified squamous non-keratinized epithelium. Now we will define this epithelium as squamous because the most apical cells are what? Squamous, okay, and they have nuclei so it's non-keratinized. But let us compare this one. Are these squamous cells on the top? Definitely not. Okay. So what has happened here? There is a rapid proliferation and there is failure of maturation. Failure of maturation meaning the cells have to mature being squamous in nature. But in this case, they are not. So that is the definition of dysplasia. Please make note everyone. The definition is what? Rapid proliferation with failure of maturation defines dysplasia. Okay. Now what is metaplasia? Reversible change of one epithelium with another. So we will see that in a little bit. So here we are going to uh, compare these two epithelium. So by now we should be able to define without being labeled as stratified squamous non-keratinized epithelium. And here we can see a rapid proliferation with failure of maturation. So by practice, if you keep looking at some slides from the cervix, instead of this epithelium, if you note this, you can actually diagnose dysplasia. Okay? Now how do we differentiate dysplasia from cancer? In cancer, the cells are going to look pleomorphic. Pleomorphic means change in the morphology. The cytoplasm will be less, the nucleus will be huge occupying. All the cells will not resemble that of the parent cell. So those changes when they occur, they are going to be called carcinoma. So we, I will tell you more features of cancer, then we will know what is, you know, difference between dysplasia and carcinoma in a little bit. And you can see mitotic cells are present throughout the thickness of the epithelium. Okay? So that is about dysplasia. We'll go on to metaplasia next. Now metaplasia is what? There is reversible change of one adult epithelium with another. Now this change can occur due to irritant substances like smoking particles or due to viral infection. Those can cause changes within the nucleus and they entirely change the function of that cell. So here are two examples. Now you would have heard about Barrett esophagus so many times. So I'm going to start with something else here called chronic bronchitis. Now if you notice smokers, even without knowing they are smokers, what is characteristic thing you will notice in smokers? Coughing, yeah, they cough all the time. They try to bring up some kind of sputum. So let us apply that on this image. So you will learn this very soon, okay? 
So here is a bronchial passage, and if I take a, a small section and look under the microscope, you will see that they have respiratory epithelium, which is what? Pseudostratified, ciliated columnar cells and goblet cells. Now, why do we have that epithelium? Because the mucus produced will be slowly moved by the exclusory or the, the ciliary activity towards the upper respiratory tract. Okay, so that is the function of the ciliated cells. So when you smoke constantly over a period of time, look what happens to that epithelium. The epithelium is replaced by stratified squamous, non-keratinized epithelium. So what does this change to the nuclei of these cells? The particles, the chronic irritants, okay? And so what happens here is that the mucous glands become hypertrophied. So there is more mucus produced, but there are no ciliated cells to move them towards the upper respiratory tract. So there is stasis of the mucus, and then you notice that this person is going to cough a lot to clear the mucus, okay? So that is chronic bronchitis. Now the next one example is the Barrett esophagus, and that is co common cause is the GERD. It's a reflux of the gastric contents causing change in the epithelial cells, okay? So we have the stratified squamous becoming simple columnar. So here is a region that is shiny region is all the lower end of esophagus and these are the epithelium or the mucosa of the stomach extending into the lower ends of the esophagus. Okay, so that is a pre-malignant condition and that is the Barrett esophagus. So high magnification at one of these junctions, we can see how the stratified uh, squamous epithelium has been interrupted with simple columnar epithelium of the stomach. Okay, so please make note of that. This is commonly asked in exams, what epithelium replaces what in Barrett's esophagus condition. So let us go through carcinoma very briefly. Now cancer in Latin means crab. That means it's going to go from one area to the other, skipping here and there. Okay, so that is typical description of cancer cells. So as I mentioned, when you call it a carcinoma, that means it is malignant. Neoplasm or epithelial cell origin. Please underline that. When they come from a gland, you call it adenoma. When it comes from the epithelial cells, you call it carcinoma. So malignant neoplasm, that is the important word. When do you call it a malignant cell? When they can metastasize and they can cause death of a patient. Now I told you that there are factors that differentiate dysplasia from cancer. So these are the factors. These are six factors. You don't have to memorize them. You're going to see that in the first chapter in pathology when you reach there. So the malignant cells of the epithelium, they will take up all these properties and that's what results in cancer formation. Means they produce their own growth factors. They do not listen to all the inhibitory factors. They can invade, they can multiply at infinity, they produce their own vascularity, and they evade apoptosis. So all these makes up a tumor cell, and they can migrate to nearby areas or distant areas, and that is called metastasis, to cause death. So we just studied this area, the T zone, and here a pap smear is being done, and sometimes they are smeared on the glass slide and studied, and you call it cytology, right? So if a chunk of tissue is taken and they are studied, then you call it biopsy. So this is plain cytology. You smear the area, you stain them, you look at it under a microscope, you see two types of uh, slides here, okay? So these are the squamous cells. Does everybody in the class know how to identify squamous cells? How do they look? They look like fried eggs, we normally call it, right? So you take an egg and drop it on the table. What you see is the yolk in the center and the white cytoplasm around. So this is how squamous cells look. So here is another squamous cell. So this is a pap smear taken from a patient. And you can see that these cells are different to the squamous cells. Can we see that? So these are malignant cells. 
So they exhibit pleomorphism, means what? Difference in morphology. You can see how the nucleus is much larger. It takes up more space within the cell, and the cytoplasm is very minimal. So there is reversal of nuclear cytoplasmic ratio in cancer cells. So if these kind of changes happen within the epithelial cells, and they are limited to the epithelium, meaning they do not cross the basement membrane, then you call it carcinoma in situ, okay? But if they invade the connective tissue beneath, then you call it invasive carcinoma, simple as that, okay? Carcinoma is the changes we just saw, what happens to the cell, the nucleus, and if it crosses the basement membrane, it becomes invasive. That means it is going to metastasize, and they're going to end up somewhere else causing death of the patient. So you call it malignant, right? So the same thing is what is given in this diagram here, and we can see pleomorphism of the cells, abnormal rapid proliferation, and here these cells do not resemble the parent cell at all, at all, okay? Compared to the benign tumors. So, so far we covered more of our nucleus. We'll just go and look at cytoplasm. Few examples, you've already seen that in biochem, I think. So we will just run through these. Now let us look at the diagram here. So that's the cell membrane, and here is the rough ER, and we know that we just studied about the proteins that are produced, and they are packaged through the Golgi, and what they contain within are the lysosomal enzymes, the hydrolytic enzymes. So the main function of lysosomes, as we see here, are the suicide bags or stomachs because they digest the material here. So the food that enters the cell could be glycolipids or it could be GAGs, that is glycosaminoglycans, or long-chain fatty acids, whatever it is that comes into the cell, you can see how they fuse with that to form a phagolysosome, okay? And then digestion occurs within. So not only the food, but if there is another organelle within the cell that is damaged due to aging process or any other destruction, then you can see how the lysosomes engulfs those and they cause digestion of them. So that is a function of lysosome. So the hydrolytic enzymes are very key in their function, and if they are absent, then they result in certain diseases. So three of them are given here. Tay-Sachs disease is where the glycolipids are not broken down. Glycogen storage disease, where glycogen is contained in large amounts in liver and in muscle cells. In Hurler's syndrome, you will see the gags in lots of tissues from head to toe. So here we have Tay-Sachs in a diagrammatic format. So basically it is due to deficiency of the hexosaminidase A, which will cause a breakdown of the ganglioside, GM2. And we can see if they are absent, then what happens to the ganglioside? It gets accumulated within the cytoplasm. Now the key thing we are looking at here is the structure of a neuron, okay, neuron. Now, the neuron has a cell body and its axon. And if these neurons are found in the cerebral cortex, and these will give the commands for the second-order neurons present in the spinal cord. So they will control the motor activity of our body. So that means the neurotransmitters are produced in the cell body here called the soma. So if these substances accumulate to a large extent, within the cytoplasm, then there is not much space available for the neurotransmitters to be produced and transmitted. So what happens to these neurons is that they will get dilated and they will appear pale because of large amount of ganglioside getting accumulated. So therefore these neurons will not be able to do its regular command. So here we can see, uh, you will see in the next module, the structure of neurons within the cerebral cortex. So here is a cell body of a neuron, and these areas are all intense because they have large amount of rough ER, and you're gonna call them the missile substance. You will learn that later on. But if you compare them with the patient with Tay-Sachs disease, you can see how 
nerve cell bodies are dilated and they are pale staining in comparison to the normal neurons. So these neurons will not be able to control the second order neurons that innervate the muscles and therefore they result in abnormal reflexes or increased muscle tone and all that activity. Okay? Now the neuron cell bodies are also present in an area called retina in an eye and the pale appearance of these neurons results to this pallor in this area around the spot called macula. So the macula appears cherry red against the background of pale staining neurons. Okay, so that is cherry red spot commonly seen. Familial hypercholesterolemia is mainly due to the defective uh, coating with adaptin. So the adaptin is this black region that just highlighted with red up here. So once you do not have adaptin, then the lipid, the LDL, is not able to be internalized within the cell. So the LDL remains more within the lumen and is carried on towards into the blood and it gets deposited in various areas like these. So that causes xanthomas, okay, accumulation of lipid in different areas. Coronary arteries, very important concept. We will go through the importance of the formation of plaque, atherosclerosis, when we do our CPR module. A brief mention on cartagenous syndrome. It is due to abnormal ciliary protein called dynein. So we should remember this image, cross-section through the cilia, how we have the axoneme, and these are the microtubules, and these are the dynein arms. So the dynein arms are very important for the unidirectional movement of the cilia. And absence or the abnormality of these dynein proteins will result in stasis of the secretion because of abnormal movement. Now, we also have something called sterility in the males because the tail of the spermatozoa also has the 9 plus 2 arrangement. So defective dynein arms will cause defective movement of spermatozoa resulting in sterility. Dexocardia is another condition that is due to reversal of the side of the heart. That is basically during embryogenesis, the failure of the cells to move towards the left because they are directed by the centrosomes. So if that centrosome also has the same uh, structure, and failure of movement of the cells towards that region results in dextrocardia. So these three make up immotile cilia syndrome. Okay, immotile cilia syndrome. All right, so Ehlers-Danlos is a condition where there is abnormal collagen formation. Now we studied that collagen fiber, right, a collagen molecule is made up of triple helix of alpha chains. So each of the alpha chain is very typical and that's what differentiates them as type 1, type 2, type 3 collagen and so on. Okay, so when there is abnormality in those alpha chains, then they result in different types of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So therefore, the connective tissues containing the collagen fibers will be abnormal. So what is shown is on the outside. What we are not seeing is the connective tissue capsule around the internal organs. Okay, we learn about adventitia, we learn about capsule of the organs. They are all surrounded by collagen fibers. So if you have abnormal collagen fibers, those organs are not protected as they should be. So most of these patients die because of a rupture of blood vessels or internal organs because of abnormal collagen. Okay? But these are just indication externally to say that there's something going wrong within their internal systems. Now scurvy, the importance of vitamin C, it acts as a cofactor in the hydroxylation of proline. So if you look at the diagram of collagen formation, it was covered in your lecture, it's important how the strengthening of the bond between the alpha chains is mainly due to the vitamin C, hydroxylation of proline. So which is very important for normal, healthy collagen formation. We can see most times this example is given in your board exams 
as to scurvy, right? So bleeding gums or loose teeth, these are common symptoms of vitamin C deficiency. Poor wound healing as well is asked commonly. Muffin syndrome is uh, based on fibrillin gene governing the elastic fiber formation. So we have to know the elastin and fibrillin component of elastic fibers and various structures where they are important. So we have the elastic artery here called the aorta. You will study this in detail in cardiovascular system. And if the elastic fibers are abnormal, the aorta is going to get enlarged. It will not be able to recoil after the systolic contraction of the heart. So that can cause, um, you know, rupture of this aorta. So although here we are just seeing this aorta as a cross-section segment, we have to think of aorta as the ascending part, the arching, then you have the descending, the thoracic aorta, the abdominal aorta. It is so crucial when we learn about this aorta structure when you go into a pathology. So this pathology can manifest in any segment of the aorta. Okay, so around 40 years to 45, a patient with Marfan's will, will have to always look out for aortic aneurysms. Okay, so let us do one question. Okay, rapid proliferation with failure of maturation this is called dysplasia. Good. We'll come back in 10 minutes.